Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well tonight. Good to see you here for Foundations as uh, we're continuing in our exploration of uh, Christian doctrine. And um, over the next few weeks, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at uh, the person of Christ, the work of Christ, and um, we're going to start taking things from a slightly different angle tonight. And that is looking at how does the whole process, of, in a sense, of salvation work. Um, kind of a big overarching way of capturing a series of doctrines um, that have frequently been known as the doctrines of grace, or perhaps you've heard them called the points of Calvinism, um, which is a little bit of a misnomer because he never wrote them himself. Um, John Calvin, the theologian, performer back in the, uh, in the Reformation, um, but these points, in a sense, capture his teaching. And there's a series of five. We're not going to do them all tonight. We decided to slow things down a little bit so that we can give attention to, to each one. Um, and again, we're going to do this in a way of trying to take something that's up here and kind of bringing it down here so we can wrap our minds around it um, a little bit together. So is it, is it going to be completely thorough? No. But I hope it's, it's adequate and accessible enough um, that we can think about this and realize why it's important to think about it. Um, the reason we're starting with this one tonight as well, um, we're going to be looking at this whole idea of total depravity. Total depravity. It is, so the five points of Calvinism are usually summed up in this little acrostic called TULIP. All right, and we won't get into that much. In fact, we had a bit of an accident with flowers here earlier. So if you remember flowers being up here this morning, uh, it was the combined movement and weight of several of us up here that this sent it tipping over. So I don't really want to be talking about flowers much tonight. Anyway, um, but they string together. And the reason I say it's important that we start with this one and kind of just get our feet settled in it is the other ones that come in subsequent talks may be a little bit more abstract and hard for us to get our, wrap our minds around. We will. We'll do our best to get it from up here to down here so we can, we can all be working with it. Um, but if we get this, it's kind of like one of those watershed issues. You know what I mean by a watershed? A watershed is like a mountain range, right? Where the water lands on it determines whether it goes to one source to the sea or to the other. And where we land on essentially what we're answering with total depravity is what really is sin and how much has it affected us as human beings. And if we answer that question uh, in a particular way, one way or the other, uh, the outcome is, is completely different. So what really is sin? How much has it affected us as human beings? To put it one way, are we sinners because we commit acts of sin or do we commit acts of sin because we're sinners? Um, if we think of it in the first way, are we sinners because we're sinners because we commit acts of sin, then we'll probably view our greatest need as forgiveness and then enlightenment and how do I get on the right path so I don't do this anymore, which isn't completely false when it comes to a view of what God has done for us in salvation, but it's not the full picture. Our situation when it comes to sin is a bit more grim than simply we've made some mistakes along the way or we're incredibly flawed. And God's answer 
his rescue plan in light of that grim picture which we're going to paint here tonight uh, is that much more amazing. Now I said this morning to come tonight for this incredibly encouraging discussion we're going to have on total depravity. And I hope as we land at the end you will see reason why there is such reason to be encouraged as we think about this doctrine. So how much has sin impacted human beings? And this is the the track we're going to go on when we think about total depravity. And this is just a definition that I kind of have have brought together. That total depravity means, let's just say what it doesn't mean to begin with. Because I think sometimes when we start talking about this issue, um, we can get our defenses up a little bit. And we'll, we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But what it does not mean is that all of us are equally bad. We're totally depraved, right? We're not all equally bad, nor are we as bad as we possibly can be. I'm not saying to any of us, as you look in the mirror tonight or tomorrow, that you can look at it and say, I'm the worst version of me possible. Um, That's not what total depravity is speaking to. What it does mean is what's on the screen here, that we are all so completely affected by sin that we cannot and will not take steps toward God without him first doing something in us. We are also completely affected by sin that we cannot and will not take steps toward God without God first doing something in us. So we need to think very clearly about this, what it's saying and what it's not saying, about how we can all be in the same boat in one sense but different at the same time. Because someone's response to the words total depravity might be somewhat defiant, as I alluded to earlier, where you say, well, I'm not that bad. Come on. I may not be perfect, but I'm not totally depraved-like. And then fill in your worst scoundrel from history. Maybe Hitler or Stalin or maybe somebody more contemporary or more agent. And, and total doesn't mean you've done the absolute worst that you are capable of. Rather, it's a measure of the degree to which sin has negatively impacted my ability and your ability, apart from God's intervention, to respond positively to God. Does that make sense? And so... The biblical portrayal of sin's impact on us is total. When we think about what did sin do, it didn't just damage us. It didn't just impair us. It is something that is total and complete to every aspect of our being. Absolute might be a way to put it. And it impacts that ability to respond positively towards God, to take step towards him. To love him as we ought to. And so it may be helpful to think of different ways to express this, such as these. Total depravity could also be um, expressed as complete corruption. Complete corruption. Or, and when you think about it in terms of uh, ability, of absolute inability. Meaning, when we think of Are we capable of responding to God? Sin has impacted us so negatively that on our own, without his intervention first doing something in us, we cannot. That's the idea. And so sometimes that expression, total depravity, may kind of cause an emotional reaction. 
um, to think of it in terms of total as getting to every last bit of you. We'll go through why this is, uh, what, how we see this in the Bible, why we have this doctrine. And we'll start in the beginning in Genesis. And we're reminded in Genesis that the Lord commanded the man, he says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so there are two ways in which death is being spoken of here. One is that Adam and Eve would eventually face physical death, right, as a result of their sin. But the other is that while they were still physically alive and functioning, they were already dead spiritually. And it's this idea that is picked up in the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. We're going to go there in, in just a moment. But you may remember a couple weeks ago, if you were here, when we were talking about regeneration and conversion, we were in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to land there again tonight because the regeneration part, total depravity, is the why regeneration is needed. Remember, regeneration is God bringing dead people to life through his spirit. Total depravity is the condition why that's necessary. Why does God have to do that? So let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Now there's several things, characteristics, qualities, observations about this that Paul is making statements about our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And the first is that he says, picking up that theme, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. And the question we need to ask when we think of that is, dead in transgressions and sins, the question is, well, what's dead mean? How dead is dead? Now, to help us answer that, I want us to think about, can anybody name this couple? Can you at least name the movie they're from? Anyone? What's that? Miracle Max from what movie? The Princess Bride. Anyone seen The Princess Bride? If you've not seen The Princess Bride, classic movie, I encourage you to see it. When The Princess Bride, there's this, there's this hero, Wesley, who is in the course of the movie. He is captured. He's brought to the pit of despair where there's this movie that sucks the life force out of him. And in a vengeful moment of the movie, the villain comes along and moves the needle basically to the, to the, to the highest setting and sucks all of the life out of him. Perhaps. Because they bring him to Miracle Max. And Miracle Max's conclusion, when he says to them, he says to them this, you know, your friend is only mostly dead. And mostly dead means he's also a little alive. We have a lot to learn from Miracle Max about spiritual death because... 
when it comes to what Paul is trying to tell us about in Ephesians chapter 2, is simply this. How dead is dead? Dead. <laughs> it means completely non-responsive. It means no life whatsoever. To put it in maybe more practical terms for those of us who are a little more mechanically inclined, there are times I can remember I had a little white pickup truck in Chicago and there came this point where I was having trouble with my battery. And it wasn't just that I left the lights on and drained the battery down. And what can you do when a battery is drained completely down? You can recharge it. Because the battery itself is still functional. I know we'll say it's a dead battery, right? But it's not really a dead battery because it's only mostly dead. It can be brought back to life if you put the right conditions there. But there comes a point where a battery truly is dead. It's no longer a battery. Try to charge it all you want. It won't hold anything. And there's only one solution I discovered. I was young. I didn't have much money. But I had to put out the money to just buy a new battery. To take that battery out. and some, They can take it someplace and they can recreate it, put new things in it, and it's a completely different battery. It's not the same thing. And that's the concept here. When he says you're dead in your transgressions and sins, he is telling them that you, are, you were completely apart from the life of God and unable and unwilling, as we're going to see, to respond to him in a positive way. He says you followed the ways of the world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work at, at those, in those who are disobedient. And this idea of following carries the implication of, I guess you could say bondage or enslavement. Because when you follow someone, you are in a sense submitting yourself to their desires and to their will. They were... He says we're conforming ourselves to the ways of the world. He says it's, it's like we're being uh, complying with Satan, I guess, in a sense, if you will. He says the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And again, this is painting a portrait that is grim. It is not flattering. It is not hopeful. He says you're dead, but dead doesn't mean inanimate, like we looked at in Genesis. It actually means moving actively away from God. Remember, the dead part is simply that you on your own cannot positively move toward God because you don't want to. We're going to talk more about that in, in just a little bit. And then he says that this grim picture is completing with, completed with a description of... Um, a general impulse to do what's contrary to God's will. He says, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. And if you look at Galatians chapter 5, flesh, sinful nature, that, uh, that part of us that's driven away from God are, are synonymous. And he says, the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh and the flesh to the spirit. And he is saying, on our own, we gratify. We're in a condition of wanting to follow though that urge and not one that pleases God. And it's not just a matter of physical urges and appetites, which we may want to say, you know, cravings of our flesh. But he says also following its desires and thoughts. It's about our thinking, our ideas, our values. And 
All of these dynamics, it's not a simple picture. It's a, it's a composite, it's a mosaic, and they, it's a picture of human beings that when we're left to ourselves, what can be said of all of us is we are totally depraved. Absolutely unable on our own. We cannot and we will not respond positively to God. By nature, we're not positively inclined towards Him or of conforming to His ways. In fact, what this is telling us is just the opposite. You may be saying, I thought you said this was going to be encouraging. Right? This is not a very encouraging picture. I don't like the way I, I would rather think of myself as simply a marred masterpiece. Right? Or, or, or a flawed individual. But the biblical pictures is far more grim. He says, by nature, we are deserving of wrath. Left to ourselves, God's righteous response to our sin is one of judgment. And you may be saying, well, I don't think this applies to everybody. Surely this can't apply to everybody. Well, let's just jump over to another passage. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> and this speaks to a number, of, a number of things. Our moral standing, our mind, again, our desires. But the Apostle Paul, quoting from Psalms in the Old Testament, says, as it is written, and again, he's trying in the first few chapters of Romans just to give you a big picture, like here's the big picture, let's bring it down. He was trying to explain to his readers why the whole world, every last man, woman, and child on the face of the planet, stands guilty before God. And he says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I just want to do that, just so you visually catch it, because he's trying to make a point. He says, we have no moral standing to stand before God and say, I'm, I'm, I'm deserving, I'm worthwhile. I, we have no righteousness of our own. You say, I'm a pretty good person. People may argue that. But the question is, from whose perspective? It would be like me saying, you know, I'm pretty wealthy when it comes to monopoly money. I'm pretty well off when it comes to the game of life, the, the board game, not the real game. But when it comes to the real world, that currency of monopoly money won't buy you a car. It won't buy you a pack of gum at Sainsbury. Our righteousness, the things that we do that we think are pretty good, have no currency with God because they're all tainted by who we are. They're all tainted by the fact that sin has so thoroughly bound its way into our desires and our thoughts and our motivations. It's not, a, it's not a pretty picture. He says here that there is no one who understands. It affects our, our thinking, our mind again. It affects our desires. We've all turned away. All of us. It answers that question for us. Not seeking him. Not even one. So, what's this mean? You hear this, and you say, how encouraging is this? How, how can anyone be saved from this? This is a bad picture. How can this be turned around? What hope could we possibly have? In the words of Miracle Max, it would take a miracle. Which is exactly what salvation is. Salvation is a miracle. Because 
God, because of his great love for us, God who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What does this simply say? It simply says that God takes the dead and brings them to life. God takes the dead and brings them to life. That's the miracle that God accomplishes. He doesn't take a mostly dead person and forgive them and restore them. He takes a dead, dead sinner and brings them to life. He makes us alive with Christ even when we're dead in our sins and in our transgressions. And so coming back to this whole idea that we're pursuing tonight is we're not all equally bad. Look around the room. I'm sure a lot of us can make the comparisons and say, oh, i got more Monopoly money than that person. I've got more currency socially. You know, I'm a better off person than that person when it comes to my conduct. But we're not all equally bad. We're not all Stalins and Hitlers or whoever your villain of the day is. We're not all as bad as we possibly can be. There are controls in society, laws that restrict us to the full expression of our depravity. But we are so, all of us, so completely affected by sin that we cannot and we will not make those steps towards God without Him doing that miraculous thing, that miraculous work in us first. The first move in salvation is God's, and we cannot respond positively to Him unless He first does this in us. We can't choose Him unless He first comes to bring life. And how does that work? Because some of you may be already making the the connection. Um, What about our ability to make choices? Which again, we're going to weave that in through the discussion over the next few weeks as we go through these doctrines. But what about our choices? And what about all these invitations that God gives for us to choose? To choose Him. How do you fit all those together? Well, I don't, I don't want to make this a history lesson again because I don't want to take us from up here and go back up here. But you know what? We should probably think that if we're asking that question tonight, guess what? It's been around for a long time. We are not the brightest generation that has come along. Or to put it another way, uh, people who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago were not ignorant. They had capable brains, <laughs> sometimes more capable than our own because they didn't have devices and such, right? No, but, um, but they did, and they thought deeply. And this discussion has come up over and over again between this idea of do we have choice in this or is God in control? Is our sin so thorough that we need God to intervene? Are we totally depraved? So the picture up on the screen I'm going to put up here is of two men. One was a British monk. His name is Pelagius. Pelagius, who upheld that we have to have a free will because God tells us to choose him. That Adam's sin, remember this is the question, how much does sin impact us? That Adam's sin did not impact our ability to choose. And that basically when it comes to salvation, it's up to you. Here's God's offer. And really what happens with that is up to you. When it comes to salvation then, the decisive move is in whose hands? These ones. But how does that square with what we were reading earlier? 
about the portrait, that portrayal we have of ourselves in Ephesians, in Romans. Well, there was a, an African bishop who argued that it didn't square well at all with that picture of how thoroughly sin impacts the human ability to respond to God. And he would even say, we can't stop sinning. It's not even possible. And take steps towards God without God taking the battery out and putting a different battery in. Of God bringing life where there is none. Because no human effort can contribute to salvation. We wouldn't choose him. We can't choose him. It's all God's doing. It's by his grace. That was the counter argument. And as hard as it may be for sometimes for us to wrap our minds around, it's, it's what's consistent with what the Bible teaches us. And so a meeting of church leaders held at the, in the year 418, they agreed with Augustine the bishop from Africa, and rejected what was known as Pelagianism. Well, for a couple hundred years, it went silent. Then there was two more guys, Erasmus and Luther, some characters. Erasmus, a Dutch philosopher, humanist, who held views similar to Pelagius and challenged the position of Augustine that was embraced by leaders of the Protestant Reformation, guys like John Calvin and Martin Luther. And he wrote a book, a work, a pamphlet, I guess you could call it, with a catchy title, The Freedom of the Will. I wonder what that one's about, right? There was Luther, who is not one known for charm and tact, especially after he had a few pints in him. Um, and he passionately refuted the writings of Erasmus on this issue because to him, it wasn't just a minor theological point, but it was the foundation of his understanding of the entire gospel and the glory of God and salvation. So in response to the freedom of the will, he wrote back. This was the equivalent of social media of the day. He wrote something called the bondage of the will, making a point similar to Augustine that the human will is incapable of choosing God or taking those steps toward God because it is in bondage to sin, every last bit of it. And so we come to one last key person, because I'm sure you're still thinking, but I make choices. I know I make choices. And you do. You make real choices. We referenced this individual this morning. Mike did. Jonathan Edwards. And you may be saying, I'm in control of my own will. Like I said, I make choices every day. Yes, you do. Everybody does. But why? Here's the key question. Why do you choose what you do? <clears throat> because it is what your mind has determined what is best and desirable. See, this is what Jonathan Edwards brought to the conversation. He would say, your will is free. He took a slightly different tack on it, but he comes to the same point. Your will is free and always is, but your mind, as we read in Scripture, is contrary to God's and exercises the will accordingly. It's not like your will is just out there doing its own thing, right? I'm the will. I'm going to do what I want over here. It doesn't matter what the mind is thinking. No, how does your will work? You filter options through your senses and understanding, and then the will is what chooses. And what he would argue is, is for the mind to desire God and his ways, to want to move towards him, to see that as something good. What do we teach in our youth works here? Shove off God, <laughs> I'm in charge, no to your rule. We don't see it as desirable. We want to rule our own lives. And for us to see that as desirable, a transformation has to take place in us. 
a miracle. And apart from God's intervention, sinners like you and me will have no appetite for God. So, is the will free to choose in Jonathan Edwards' opinion? I just want to read you some. This is a great little book about the doctrines of grace that I have in my library by a man who's now since passed, James Montgomery Boyce. He was a Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. But he said this, Certainly anyone who wants to come to Christ may come to him. That is why Jonathan Edwards insisted that the will is not bound. But think about this. However, this liberty is what makes our refusal to seek God so unreasonable and increases our guilt. Who is it who wills to come? The answer is no one, except those in whom the Holy Spirit has already performed the entirely irresistible work of the new birth, so that as a result of this miracle, the spiritually blind eyes of the natural man are opened to see God's truth, And the depraved mind of the sinner, which in itself has no spiritual understanding, is renewed to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. See, we're answering the question again. How thoroughly has sin impacted us? How completely has it impacted our ability to react to God in a positive way. And the answer again, that we are all so completely affected that we cannot and we will not take those steps without God first doing something in us. That's what Jonathan Edwards was just talking about. And the reason this is good news for us, the reason even though we're not all equally bad or as bad as we can be, that this is in quite encouraging news that God is the one who takes the initiative, who takes the first step, that is not dependent upon my hands. I just thought I'd tag along on what Mike was talking about this morning. It means you can truly rest. It didn't start with you. It's not sustained by you. God will carry it through. Nothing about salvation has its origin in your effort or mine. Or our will. From our initial perspective, I can think back to when I was 11 or 12 years old at a church in New Jersey in the United States thinking I made a choice. I heard the gospel. Some stupid puppet skit about will you, you know, sell your soul or respond to Jesus. I don't know, remember what it was. But I remember hearing the truth of Ephesians chapter 2. Particularly for by grace it is you, you have been saved through faith. And it's the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. And I remember thinking as an 11-year-old boy, I need that. I didn't understand it completely, but I said, I'm choosing Jesus. I'm choosing salvation. I made a choice to believe, which I did. <clears throat> but how and why? And it wasn't until years later, as I read the scriptures, that I realized that was the case because God did something in me first. I never heard it before. I never even been in a meeting like that before. I just remember thinking, what's going on? I need this. I don't know why. He's asking me to come forward. Okay, I'll come forward because I know I need this. That should be encouraging. And what God starts, God finishes. So you can truly rest. And you can be confident about the gospel because it is what God uses to accomplish his purposes in bringing those who are spiritually dead to life. 
We can have confidence. I don't mean just you. But I mean when we speak a word of the gospel into somebody else's life, God uses those moments in his sovereignty to do this. It is his work. And we're, we're pulling these things apart, but it's, it's a complex, amazing, beautiful picture of how the Spirit of God and the Word of God interacts with the hearts of human beings as the gospel is shared to bring life. <laughs> it's a miracle. It's a mystery. It's beyond our complete understanding. But it's why the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. We can have confidence not only in our own salvation because it's of God and it's of his grace and it's for his glory. But it's also that same gospel message that brought us to life through his spirit will bring others to life. Which is why we exist as a church. (laughs) Which is why we invite people. Because we don't know who that person will be that will respond. But God does. And we have that responsibility Uh, to share. So I pray you are encouraged, and I pray you will continue to be encouraged as we think about these doctrines, because they may seem way up here, and what's the point of my everyday life? I hope you're starting to see that it can, and it does. And so let's let's, uh, pray in response to this and and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we do uh, just come to you before, we come before you tonight, Father, and um, as we think about this doctrine, which if we were thinking of it ahead of time, looking at the church email or hearing the announcements this morning, may think, well, who wants to go hear anything about that? Who wants to hear that we're unable, that we're so thoroughly impacted by sin that we're incapable of even even responding to, to God? But in that grim picture, the glory of the gospel shines brighter. You think of Paul's words, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We understand who we are and what our true situation is and what it is you've done for us. What we could not do for ourselves, you did. When we wouldn't turn to you, you turned to us. When we wouldn't take steps towards you, you took steps towards us. When we wouldn't call upon you, you worked in us that we would. And so while some may be here tonight asking, how does all this work? How do I know if God's speaking to me? All I know is that, Lord, as you speak into people's lives, if, if that niggle is happening, if that sense is, is this, a, is this me? Do I need to say yes? That's your spirit at work. And Father, I pray that you would continue to work in and through this church, this sense of who people are apart from you, that we might continue to be faithful in inviting all people into that relationship with you, knowing that you and your power and your goodness We'll call the dead to life. And so, Lord, as we step out into our week, may we go with the confidence that we are yours, that you have bought us and called us and and made us your own. And as you give us opportunity, that we don't need to be clever um, or uh, a scholar, we just simply need to be faithful to speak of you and your word because it is your gospel and your spirit that brings the dead to life. And so, Lord, take these truths, I pray, and and not only lodge them in our brains, but may they warm and transform our hearts to walk with you in in spirit and in truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Dave, would you lead us and close us out, please? Yeah.